Hello, and welcome to another episode of Following the Way. I am your cynical, and yet surprisingly affable host, Jason Dickey. Today on the podcast, we want to discuss a topic that I've thought about a lot recently. I've had several conversations with people about this very thing, and it's something that I think as Christians we are actually very concerned about. The problem is understanding exactly how to be better, uh, how to be more focused, and how to be more efficient in approaching uh, this topic. What I'm speaking of specifically is the idea of compassion, the idea of being compassionate like Jesus was compassionate, taking care of the needy, taking care of the disenfranchised, taking care of the poor amongst us, all that kind of thing. This is a particularly difficult topic, I think, because, quite frankly, living in America, we aren't really surrounded by that many people who we would deem as poor, as struggling, as needy. Now, before you jump all over me, uh, yes, I know there are homeless people, yes, I know that there are people that are struggling, but generally speaking, we live in a fairly well, uh, fairly prosperous society. And so because of that, we don't see this need the way that maybe some people at different times had. And there's a sort of cynicism that goes with people that are in those situations. I mean, there are jobs to be had. There are opportunities for work to be had. Um, and so it makes us a little bit hardened, I think, towards taking care of people. Um, and so because of that, we, we end up kind of following into the same sorts of tropes that we use about these things, like, we need to take care of those that are poor, we need to take care of the hungry, or we need to make meals for those that are in a difficult place, or write cards, or, you know, all those sorts of things, and we have a fairly set list of actions that we see as good actions to do uh, to help display the sort of love for one another that God, and through Jesus, so frequently shows us. We see this, you know, listed out, like I said, about we write cards to the shut-ins or uh, we take food to people after they've had a child. And I don't want to demean those activities at all because as the recipient of some of those meals, as a recipient of some of that care and consideration, I will tell you that it is very much appreciated. Um, I, I don't mean to diminish those actions at all. I think rather that the idea is simply, what else can we do? How else should we act and behave? How, what other things can we do as Christians to display the love of Jesus? And I think that's a really, really difficult question for us. I think it's really hard for us to figure out exactly what we should do, how we should do it, when we should do it. Um, we're busy people. We have our own lives. And we live within our own lives and our own you know, fairly stable surroundings. So that's what I want to talk about uh, here um, I think it will be beneficial for us to consider these ideas for a little bit together. I, I want to start by kind of talking about my own experiences with trying to help the poor. Um, and this is where the cynicism of your host kind of comes in, I guess. Uh, I, I've, I've bought a lot of meals for people that are homeless. Um, I've uh, taken time to stop for people who are um, on the side of the road with car issues. Um, I've tried to be good about stopping and, and talking to people that, that need help. Um, I've 
been panhandled, you know, for money before, um, and all those sorts of things. And, and I give it, if I, if somebody asks for money and I have cash, I give it to them. If somebody asks for food, I take them and buy them a sandwich. I can't tell you, um, the frequency with which I bought Subway sandwiches for people that, that wanted food. Um, and I, I plan to continue those things. And I, I don't say all this to say, look at me, I'm a, I'm a great person. I, I just want to establish kind of my background, um, with these sorts of situations. I will tell you um, that I've never given money to somebody who asked for it um, or bought a sandwich for somebody who asked for food and felt really good about myself, um, to be quite honest. Uh, Usually when I've bought a sandwich for somebody who was homeless, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, um, they were more overweight than I was. They ate better than I did. It was clear. You could tell by the shape of their body. Um, anytime I've given money to people that have asked for money, they typically have dressed about as well as I have, or have even had a nicer backpack on than I had at the time or whatever the circumstance may be. I'm just saying that a lot of times my experience with people who ask for things is that they don't actually need it. Um, I I don't mean this to say that we shouldn't give, uh, as I said, as I went into this, I plan to continue to give to people if they ask of it. Um, Jesus very clearly says, if somebody asks you to walk a mile with them, walk with them too. If somebody asks for your cloak, give them your tunic also. I mean, go above and beyond to give to people as they request. But I think it's important to kind of cage this discussion about what we do within a very real world that we context in that a lot of times the people that are asking for things are people that don't need anything. Um, so our efforts to try and take care of the poor, our efforts to try and take care of the the people that supposedly are hungry, I guess, kind of falls flat on his face, does it not? I mean, look, feel free to disagree with me. This is just my own experience and my own opinion about it, but I've never walked away from those situations feeling like I did a great thing. And that's just to be honest. Um, maybe there's something wrong with my own cynicism and looking at the world, but I think we live in a prosperous country, country in which, yeah, there isn't a great need for those sorts of things. Okay, so now we get into some really uh, very practical conversations, do we not? Because Jesus said, you know, um, you know, you were, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was, uh, you know, naked and you gave me clothes. And they said, when did we do these things? He said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so Jesus tells us that we need to be clothing those who are naked and to feed those that are hungry and to take care of the widows and orphans in their trouble, to take care of you know, people that are struggling and disenfranchised. And you could go through the old law and look at all the commandments of the Israelites to take care of those that are struggling, to take care of those that are in need. So this is clearly something that is very fundamental to being a Christian. And so how do we do it? Quite frankly, how do we make sure that we're doing what we need to do in this regard? Because I think we all recognize the need. We all recognize that this is something that we should do. So how do we do it? How do we be better about that? And, and what can we do to try and grow in that regard? I, I don't think that making a list of specific things to do is that helpful. Again, feel free to disagree with me. I, I'm not sure that a conversation in which you sit around with your friends and try and make a list of specific actions about how to be better in taking care of the disenfranchised is going to make that big of a difference. I'm just not convinced that that is the best way to show this kind of love for the needy. 
rather, what I want to do is to focus in and hone in on Jesus, what he did, his attitude, and maybe by looking at Jesus and seeing the way that he lived and looking at his life, we won't necessarily have a list of specific things that we can do to take care of the poor, but we can at least begin to see the way in which we should view the world. We can see the world through his eyes. And I think ultimately that that's the idea of the New Testament. Paul, the epistle writers, the gospel writers, they did not write a book listing out different things you can do to help people. They didn't write out lists of what you should or shouldn't do. Oh, certainly morality is contained in the New Testament. And certainly you can parse doctrine from the New Testament. But if you were really trying to write a doctrinal book, would you use epistles to specific churches at a specific period in time? I mean, I, as a kind of a side note, I mean, that's a really difficult thing to understand why God chose to reveal this new kingdom that he's established through his son, through epistles to uh, timely epistles written to specific churches in a specific era in which we have to work really hard to try and understand that context. I mean, it is not the way man would organize those things. And maybe that's a discussion for a future podcast. But I think understanding the way the New Testament is written, I think, helps us come to answer our questions about something specific, like how do we take care of the poor? And so my proposition to you uh, over the next few minutes is to look at Jesus, look at how he saw the world, And see if in understanding the way Jesus interacted with the world, we can come to some sort of conclusion about how we can be better. How we can better interact with the world. So, I don't mean for this to be a didactic, preachy sort of Bible class uh, sort of topic, but I do want us to look briefly at uh, the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in Matthew chapter 14. So, here in Matthew chapter 14, we get this account of the beheading of John the Baptist. And this scene um, is something that a lot of us as, as Bible students, as Christians, are familiar with. But it's one that not really until recently I realized is so debaucherous. It's so wicked. I mean, the image here is so awful. I mean, you have Herod. Uh, it says Herod the Tetrarch. And uh, he's here um, having a party. Um He's having a party with uh, the other royalty, and uh, his, uh, his niece comes in and uh, starts to dance. The daughter of Herodias dances for him. Now, <laughs> the Bible is pretty good about uh, implying things that are nefarious and debaucherous without actually saying it. Um, and this is one of those circumstances. Uh, given the way these things play out, and knowing mankind, look, I'm, I'm not an expert on first century culture, but I, I am a human, and, uh, and I do live in this world, and I've interacted with this world enough to know pretty much what's going on here. A banquet, yeah, they're, they're drinking a lot of alcohol, right? And, and what happens when men drink alcohol that have power? Um, you don't have to watch very many movies or TV shows or be around the world very much to know exactly what is going on here. These men are getting drunk, and... Uh, they bring this girl in to dance for him, a young girl to dance for him. Oh, you know exactly what she's doing. She's stripping. I mean, she's she's uh, um, doing things that we don't like to think about uh, as being done as as moral people. We don't like to pretend like this stuff doesn't happen. But 
Um, quite frankly, Herodias, uh, the daughter of Herodias, comes in and starts dancing and is uh, taking her clothes off for these men. And uh, they're enjoying it. They're enjoying it very much. And I'm not going to speculate how far this goes, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, it goes a little bit beyond uh, her taking her clothes off. But anyway, she does such a good job of seducing Herod um, that he says, I'll give you anything you want. Now, again, this is a drunk man um, being seduced by a young girl. Um, I don't know how young she was. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like she's like a preteen or something that terrible. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a younger girl, uh, I, I would imagine. Teenager, uh, probably something like that. And uh, he's, he's so drunk and seduced that he gives her whatever she wants. And so her mom says, prompts her to say, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, you just think about the situation here. Uh, Herod, when she said this, he may have had remorse over it. Um, it says the king was sorry in verse 9. Um, but I imagine most of the people there that are at this banquet um, are probably pretty excited. Uh, they think this is great. I mean, you're talking about debauchery. You're talking about wickedness. You're talking about people that don't have a whole lot of moral fiber and character. And uh, there may have been some ohs or something like that in the crowd. But the fact of the matter is... Um, there's a lot of peer pressure to give into what's going on. It isn't just because he made an oath. It isn't because he's a man of his word. Uh, we can't be that foolish as to think that Herod's a, a man of his word. So he's, uh, he's doing what he should in regard to, to fulfilling his oath. No, he, it, it, there's a lot of peer pressure here. And so in this debaucherous scene, um, this wickedness, uh, this, uh, his niece uh, dancing before him, he agrees cuts the head off of John the Baptist and brings it in on a platter. I mean, this is so gruesome. I mean, this is, this is unbelievably, heart-wrenchingly, debaucherously gruesome. Um, it's bloody, it's vicious, it's wicked. And you can just imagine the cheers of the wicked in this assembly, celebrating the head of John the Baptist being presented at this banquet feast. Um, this, is, this is pretty tough stuff to read and to think about, um, to just think about the sin that exists in the world and to think about it being presented here over the head of John the Baptist, a man who Jesus said uh, of the seed of woman, no one greater has been born than John the Baptist. And so this is a great man. This is a prophet of God. This is a man who has done good things and dedicated himself to God. And to go in such an evil way is just, it's mind-blowing. It's it's horrifying. Okay, so why look at the beheading of John the Baptist? Well, I think that this really sets the tone for helping us to understand the character of Jesus. Just, just bear with me for a second. After John the Baptist is beheaded in this gruesome, horrifying scene, it says in verse 12, Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Verse 13, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. I mean, there's, there's nothing more surprising than that, right? This is Jesus' cousin. This is a man who he respects and knows and appreciates as a prophet of God. And he was just brutally murdered um, in a very obscene, showy way. Uh, he's humiliated. His body is passed around on a platter as a prize. 
Um, there's no wonder Jesus wants to go to be alone, to pray. Especially, not just his sorrow, but especially considering that he is going to be shamed and mocked and crucified and die. And he knows it. He knows what's coming for him. He knows it's going to be at the hands of the same sort of people that have uh, done this very thing to John the Baptist. And so, here we are. Jesus has gone to be alone. One of the most human things you can imagine. But look at the rest of verse 13. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. I mean, this poor guy. I mean, this poor, poor man, right? He's in sorrow. He's in mourning. And he wants to be by himself. It says this several times, emphasizing his wanting to be alone. He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. I mean, they're trying to make this very clear that Jesus wants to be alone. That's what Matthew's emphasizing. But the multitudes here and they follow after him because people aren't considerate of what Jesus is going through. They don't care that he wants to be alone. This is Jesus. We want to see miracles. We want to be healed. We want, we want, we want. And here is Jesus who's going through what is probably a pretty trying time emotionally um, thinking about this, thinking about his own future, wanting to be alone. And they surround him. And so Jesus goes out and he sees these multitudes. If this was anybody uh, human, uh, any other human that's lived, uh, any other person, they would drive the people away and go to be by themselves. They would say, now's not the time. Maybe even shame them for their selfishness here. But the end of verse 14 says, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Wow. He was moved with compassion for them. He healed their sick. It doesn't matter that Jesus is mourning. It doesn't matter that Jesus is suffering. What matters is that these people are in a dark place. He has compassion over them. And in response, he heals they're sick. Think about that. Think about a time that you've lost a loved one. Something bad happened to you at work. You got fired. Uh, you got railroaded in a meeting about a project. Um, and your manager got upset with you. Uh, someone, a friend backstabbed you over something. Uh, boyfriend, girlfriend broke up with you, you've been divorced, you had a spouse that cheated on you. Think about anything dark that has happened to you. It doesn't have to be something huge, it can be something small. But think about a time in which something happened that caused you to be in a dark place, to be depressed. And you just wanted to be alone. And imagine that at that moment, your friends, whatever, came over to have a party. I mean, this isn't an exact parallel, but just imagine that for whatever reason, people show up at your apartment, your house, you're surrounded by people. How do you respond to them? Let's say that your spouse dies and your friend comes over whining because their gerbil died. It's not even a dog or a cat, it's their gerbil. Their gerbil died and they come over crying because their gerbil died. 
and you're sitting here mourning the loss of your spouse. How do you respond? What do you see in this person? I think most of us would be pretty frustrated, maybe even angry, upset with this person for being so selfish as to come over because their gerbil died when you've lost your spouse. Look, this is just a rough example, but I think it demonstrates this idea pretty well, does it not? What do we see when we look at people? How do we view them? How do we view their plight? When we see them, are we moved with compassion the way that Jesus was? Sometimes it's easy to try and talk about Jesus and just jump straight to the cross, about the compassion he had for mankind and the cross, that he died for everyone. And that is certainly a great and powerful example, the greatest and most powerful example we have of compassion, of love, of sacrifice, and all those sorts of things. But the cross is such a pinnacle. It's such a paragon of selflessness that I think we see it as unattainable because ultimately it is, right? I mean, we can't be God in the flesh dying on the cross for people who rejected us. So it is the paragon of selflessness, but it's a little bit beyond our grasp of understanding. And so we talk about it, but I think it's almost dismissed in our mind a little bit because we can't grasp it. But this example here, I think, does show us something that we can grasp, that we can understand. The emotional anguish, the frustration, the sorrow that Jesus bears over the loss of John the Baptist. And yet, when he sees the multitude, he's moved with compassion. Think about that. Think about what that means. Well, following these verses is the feeding of the 5,000, which is just incredible as well. Um... Because the apostles want to send them away. Verse 15. It's already late. Send them away so they can get food. And Jesus says, no, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They do not need to go away. He's not forcing them away. He's not getting rid of them as quickly as he can. He's not just taking care of his responsibility and moving on. He is going above and beyond to take care of the needs of these people. Despite the fact that he's in a dark place. So, That's pretty impressive, right? So he feeds the 5,000. He brings the food. He feeds them all. He takes care of these people. Which, if you want, you know, you can look at John 6 and parallel the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 to the shepherd passages of the Old Testament. And maybe that would be another great podcast for the future as well. But either way, we see Jesus here taking care of these people. And so finally, um, Jesus feeds them. And... uh, Verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So he takes care of them. He heals them. He has compassion on them. He doesn't send them away as soon as he needs to. He goes above and beyond to feed them all. And then finally, and and notice it says immediately in verse 22. That's to emphasize that all these events are connected. That all these things are stacked right upon each other. The beheading of John the Baptist leading to the feeding of the 5,000. Leading to this next series of events. Which is Jesus sending his disciples across the sea in the boat. Sending the multitudes away. Verse 23, when he sent them away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. Jesus is finally alone. He finally gets his moment to be alone and to pray. And to grapple with the things that have transpired with John the Baptist.
Verse 24, but, (laughs) you knew it was coming, right? But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. But, here is Jesus, finally alone, finally able to pray. But, the disciples are in trouble. Sometimes we look at the walking on the water, because we know how this ends. Jesus walks on the water. He goes out to them. They're troubled. They say it's a ghost. Uh, Jesus says, never fear. It's I. Peter wants to walk on the water. He walks on the water. Then he sinks because he has faith and lacks faith. And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, we know the whole event. We know the whole story. Um, But have you ever realized that the context for that story is Jesus taking care of the disciples when wanting to be alone? Because he's mourning the loss of John the Baptist? I think normally, and this is the way I looked at this story for a long time until very, very recently. I think normally we look at this as Jesus went to be alone just to set up this event. (laughs) That Jesus went on the mountain just to set up the occasion for the walking on the water. That like he knew providentially what was going to happen. And so he's like setting up the situation to demonstrate to them his power and to do use it as a teaching lesson for the apostles. That's not the way Matthew presents this though, is it? I mean, if you follow the train of events closely, it's clear that Jesus is simply wanting to be alone to pray and mourn the loss of John the Baptist to reflect upon his own mortality, to f- reflect upon his death that is coming. And yet, in that moment, he recognizes that the apostles are in trouble. Look, he could have let them die. He could have raised them from the dead. He could have just calmed the waves from a distance and had them go across safely. He could have handled it so many different ways, could he not? And yet, what did Jesus do? He walked out to him on the water and said, I'm with you. I will not forsake you. I am here to take care of you. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's unbelievable the compassion he has for mankind. He went out there, not to demonstrate his power, but to teach them that they can depend upon the Christ, the Son of God, who is with them and who will be with them. That no matter if they seem alone, if the winds are high and the storm waves crash against their boat, he is with them and will protect them and will be their guide and their comforter. Do you think they thought about that later? I mean, certainly Matthew understands the significance of these events. And so certainly this would have been a comforting idea to Matthew, reflecting back on it, writing it down in his gospel. And certainly the other apostles would have had to understand and appreciate what Jesus was doing. That in hindsight, here he is putting their needs above his own in a very real and meaningful way. He had compassion for them. He loved them. And he loved man. He loves mankind. Okay. So let's go back to the way we started our conversation. How do we take care of the poor? How do we do what God wants us to do in terms of taking care of the needy? 
look, I can't make a list of every way in which we can help people. I'm not wise enough to foresee circumstances and uh, wise enough to tell you what to do in those circumstances. That's why I think the Bible doesn't give us a list of what to do. It gives us an example of who we should be. Quite simply, when your spouse comes home from work and had a rough day, and they're complaining about (laughs) Susie, you know, over in the next cube who is giving her a hard time again, do you think about your tough day? Or do you think about theirs? When somebody's whining because something happened to them that seems fairly insignificant, do you get frustrated and wish they would stop whining? Or do you have compassion? When somebody is going through the loss of a loved one, whether it's a loss due to death or a loss due to them leaving the faith. What do you see? When someone goes forward and confesses their sins before a group of people, people you go to church with, do you stand in line and shake their hand and say, we love you, we'll be praying for you, And move on? Or are you actually moved to compassion for that person? I think if we actually have legitimate compassion and love for our brother, for our sister, for our fellow mankind, I don't know that we need a list telling us what to do. I don't think we need people to tell us what the right thing to do is. I think our compassion and our conscience will move us to handle those situations the right way. But that only works if we actually have legitimate compassion over what's going on. If we have legitimate concern over our brother or our sister, over the person that we see down this street. I mean, that's what it all comes down to, right? That we see the world the way that God saw it. That we have compassion the way that God had compassion. I mean, that's why this example of Jesus in my mind is so powerful here in Matthew chapter 14. Why these sequence of events are so meaningful and impactful. Because this is something that we can understand. We can appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus made to take care of others despite his own suffering, his own dark place that he's in, his own mourning over the loss of a loved one. Normally when we're in those circumstances, we make it about us. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm thinking. But notice that Jesus cannot turn off his compassion. He cannot turn off the love that he has for man. No matter what he is going through, he can't turn that off. And We talked about the cross and how it's so far above us. Well, let's go back to the cross. Even on the cross, after everything that he has done, what does he pray to God on the cross for? What does he pray for on the cross? Father, 
forgive them. They do not know what they do. I mean, look, again, those words are so powerful and so far beyond our comprehension that I think it's easy for us to ignore them. But take that idea, pair it with what we've read in Matthew 14, apply it to your own life, and ask yourself, do you love your brother? Do you love your sister? Do you love the men and women around you? Do you love the annoying person at work? Do you love the weird guy who says weird things and is really awkward? Do you love the, the woman that has bad hygiene in your office? <laughs> I mean, look, we can make all sorts of weird examples, right? But the fact of the matter is, do you have compassion on the disenfranchised? Do you have compassion on the world? I just want you to think about it. Look, I, I don't say these things because I do. I don't say these things because I am a great example of understanding all these things and doing these things the exact right way and having some deep, meaningful way of helping others. Look, I think about this a lot because I know that this is something that I struggle with. I am not the sort of person that people feel comfortable coming up to when they have difficulties. I never have been that guy. I may not ever be that guy. But the question is, am I trying to be better about that? Do I make myself approachable? When people see me, do they see somebody who cares? Who wants to help? Who wants to pray for them? Look, nobody likes helping somebody move, but do you help them move? I'm not trying to make a list. I'm trying to help you all think with me about the daily circumstances that require us to love each other and to take care of one another. Look, don't make a list of what you can do better. That's not what I'm asking. I just want you to think about this sequence of events of Jesus. Think about how he handled them. And think about people that you know that need compassion. Not what they need for you, you to do for them. I, I, that's, not, that's not what I want you to urge you for or, or to do uh, in listening to this. I just want you to think and list out in your mind people that you should have compassion for. And what in their life makes them deserving of compassion. Just, just go through the interactions you have over the next couple days and think about that. This has been another episode of Following the Way. If you'd like to get in contact with the podcast, please feel free to email us at followingthewaypodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, love to hear your thoughts and your comments. Let me know what you think about this conversation, and let me know what feedback you have. Thanks. Have a great day.